There is an old saying, it's possible to be so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good. And there's a grain of truth in that. It is possible to be heavenly minded in a certain way so that you are of no earthly good. But this passage we read this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 challenges that because I would say this passage ties together being heavenly minded with doing earthly good. One might say in light of 1 Thessalonians 4, you have to be heavenly minded to do earthly good. Paul ties together the last day and every day. He ties together the last day that is to come with your everyday life. He looks at Monday morning in light of Christ's final coming and shows why the future matters very much in the present. Your daily mundane concerns and ultimate eschatological concerns are all tied together. This passage is about living in the present in light of the end. Again, it's about living every day in light of the last day. In fact, in this passage, Paul really moves seamlessly from uh, very uh, basic instruction about the Christian life. He moves seamlessly from commanding them to live a quiet life and to mind their own business and to work with their hands. He moves right into Jesus descending from heaven to earth with a trumpet blast and a shout and the voice of an archangel. The most ordinary events in life and the most amazing event that is to come. Your everyday life and the life of the world to come are joined together. They're linked in this passage. And it's important for us to see why that is the case. I think C.S. Lewis has captured the spirit of this passage really, really well in writing these words. I think it's a great summary of what Paul is doing uh, in this whole section of 1 Thessalonians 4. Lewis wrote... If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of that other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. In other words, Lewis is saying, to do earthly good, you must be heavenly Minded, or you might say to do good in the present, you must be future-minded. Because if we're really precise about this, Paul is talking about being future-minded more than being heavenly-minded. For Paul, it's not just about linking heaven and earth, it's about linking the future to the present. But still, I think Lewis has grabbed hold of, of the essence of this text, what Paul is doing here, and he's distilled it for us. Our future hope determines how we live in the present. We are all living in a story. We all, I think, have this sense of living inside of a story. And we have to know which way the story goes. What we believe about how the story will end determines the shape of our lives in the present chapter. Whatever chapter we're in right now, the, the way that, 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 that chapter within the story will go depends very much on what you believe about the ending of the story, the last chapter, how it all comes to a culmination. Let's look at this text. Let's look at the flow of this text, these nine verses from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul begins with a commendation. He commends them for their brotherly love. Paul does not need to write them instructions about love, as he does with so many other congregations, because they have been, as he says, taught by God to love one another. They are God-taught in the ways of love. 
They have been God-taught in brotherly love. They loved the, breth the brethren even in Macedonia. And they supported their fellow Christians in Macedonia who are going through uh, a, a very difficult time. And so really all Paul can say here is keep up the good work. Keep on doing what you're doing. He urges them to keep growing in love more and more, but he is commending them. I think for us, maybe the most interesting thing to note here is that he calls this love that Christians have for one another brotherly love. It is brotherly love. And that is because Christians form a new family. We have God as our father, and so of course we love one another as brother and sister. We are siblings within the family of God. The church is the family and household of God. And further, we can also glean from the fact that they helped the Macedonians in very practical ways. We can see that this love is not a matter of mere feeling or mere affection or mere emotion. It's a love that manifests itself in very practical, concrete actions of love. Love is as love does. Love is embodied in certain forms of action. And so it's embodied in kindness, in generosity, in service. You, you see that here. He goes on, he tells these Thessalonian Christians they should aspire to lead quiet lives, to mind their own business, and to work with their hands. This is such basic instruction. It seems like the kind of thing that uh, a mom or dad might uh, tell their young kids. You know, these are the things you need to do. These are just sort of the ABCs of the Christian life, it seems. But there's a lot of depth here if we really consider what Paul is saying. He says, lead a quiet life. What does that mean? Several times in the New Testament, we are commanded to lead quiet lives. By contrast, sometimes people are identified as living loud lives. So, for example, the immoral, foolish woman in Proverbs chapter 7 is called loud. What do loud and quiet mean? mean in these kind of contexts when it's talking about a way of life. I think loud and quiet when they show up in this kind of context really do not have to do with the volume we speak with or even the number of words we speak. Rather, these are words that, des that, that describe our overall character or our overall pattern of life. To be quiet means to live a restrained, self-controlled, self-disciplined life. Uh, an emotionally controlled life. It means you are, yes, careful with your speech. It means you're humble. You practice self-denial. Whereas the loud person is proud. The loud person lacks self-control. The loud person is boisterous. The loud person will tend to be obnoxious and boastful. The loud person will gossip and I would say meddle in the affairs of others. That's what it means to live a loud life. And in fact, that's the next item in Paul's List. He says, mind your own business, this great Pauline principle that's so necessary for Christian community. Mind your own business. This is absolutely necessary for healthy community, this practice of minding your own business. It cuts off gossip because if there's no demand for gossip, it cuts off the supply of gossip. And if you mind your own business, you're not going to entertain gossip. It cuts off envy because you're not going to be constantly comparing yourself to one another. So it leads to contentment when you mind your own business. It means you will tend to your own responsibilities. You will take care of your own duties. You'll be busy with your own responsibilities so you can't be a busy body meddling in other people's affairs. When Paul says mind your own business, he means you should be so busy with good works, with works of love. You don't have time to be a busy body. Now, of course, there are all kinds of opportunities to be a busybody. 
especially in our social media age. Social, me social media makes it very easy for pretty much anybody to be a busybody, to get too entangled in the affairs of others. We're busybodies when we should be busy with the real work God has given us to do. We're busybodies when we should be busy doing the works of love that God has called us to. When we get distracted away from these works of love and get too wrapped up in the affairs of others, and the drama of their lives, and we neglect our own responsibilities. And so Paul goes on to, to describe from there how we should work. He says we should work with our own hands. The Bible teaches an incredibly high work ethic. The Bible teaches so clearly the dignity of work. Working hard is a virtue. Diligence is a virtue. And Christians should lead the way in diligence because work is a form of service to others. Work is, a, is the embodiment of love towards others. How is work an act of service to others? Well, when you work a job well, you're serving your boss. You're serving your customers. You're serving your family as you provide for them. And of course, while Paul says here, work with your hands, it doesn't have to be work with your hands. Work with your minds is just as valuable as work done with your hands. Mental labor and manual labor are both good. They're equally valuable in God's sight. Uh, they're, they're, they're equally uh, ways in which we can take dominion over God's creation as God created us to do. But I would say just as in Paul's day, it was important to stress the dignity of working with your own hands. So I think it is important in our day to stress the importance or the value or the dignity of working with our hands. Working with your hands grounds you in objective reality. There's a kind of wisdom in it. Remember, the first place we find wisdom, the first person we find who uh, is filled with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. It is Bezalel in the book of Exodus who is working with his hands to shape wood and stone and precious metals into objects of beauty and glory for the tabernacle. There's a kind of wisdom that comes from working with your hands, from submitting yourself to the properties and features of the world outside your head. And indeed, there's something very satisfying about acting upon the material world and having it respond so that you transform it and shape it into something better. This is true whether you're cooking a meal, taking the raw materials it takes to, to turn those raw materials into a feast, or whether you're building a house and taking those raw materials and turning them into a place to live. These are tangible forms of dominion. Why does Paul focus on handwork? Well, it's because in his day, the ancient Greeks had a very low view of manual labor. Uh, for Aristotle, manual labor was fit for slaves. And I would say many in our day have a very low view of handwork as well. But here Paul is elevating that work. He's giving it this status of incredible dignity. For the Apostle Paul, we're to do holy work with holy hands, transforming God's holy creation. The body is good, the physical creation is good, dominion is good. Working with your hands is good. And further, there's, there's something else I think we can glean from what Paul says here. Working to provide for your own needs, which is clearly what Paul is uh, wanting them to do here. Working to provide for your own needs is, again, a form of love. Because if you do not work to provide for yourself, what happens? If you are lazy, you end up becoming a parasite who lives off of the work of others, and that is a failure to love. If you are able-bodied, you ought to work. And apparently this was a problem in Thessalonica because Paul deals with it several times. Later on, he will tell the Thessalonians, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. 
If you're able-bodied and refuse to labor, you should have to deal with the, with the consequences of that. You should go hungry, basically is what he said. So Christians should be known, as a people, Christians should be known for their diligence, their competency, their skill, their excellence in work. We reject idleness and laziness. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, once said, some temptations will come upon the industrious, but all temptations attack the idle. And I think that is exactly right. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Paul says in verse 12 that if they live in this way, they will be walking properly. They'll be walking in a good and orderly fashion towards those on the outside. That is to say, not only does living in this kind of way serve the good of the Christian community, but it also serves the good of the Christian mission. They'll live lives that are compelling to unbelievers. Their very way of life will be unapologetic for the gospel, a defense of the gospel. They'll lack nothing, Paul says. They'll be complete. They'll be mature Christians in Christ, and they will win the respect of outsiders. One thing that was true in Paul's day, obviously it's true in our day as well, unbelievers are always very interested in how Christians live. They want to see if we live up to our profession. They want to see if we walk in accord with the book we profess to believe and to be the very word of God. Unbelievers are always very interested in how Christians live. If we claim that Jesus is king of the world, they want to know what effect that has on how we live day to day. And so our lives need to answer that question. Our lives need to satisfy that curiosity. Here's what it looks like to live under the lordship of Jesus. Here's what it looks like to have a family under the lordship of Jesus. Here's what it looks like to have a community well-ordered, properly ordered, under the lordship of Jesus. That needs to be evident. And Paul says that will win the respect of outsiders. Doesn't mean they're always going to like it. We know a lot of times we get persecuted for it but it does mean they will have to respect us for the integrity of our lives. Then in verse 13, Paul says he does not want them to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. That is, those who die before Christ's final return. Now, you might wonder, why wouldn't the Thessalonians already know about this? Why wouldn't they already have an answer to this question? Isn't the answer kind of obvious from everything else we know about uh, what God has said in his word. Well, let me tell you why I think this was a question for them. When Paul was in Thessalonica, of course, he planted a church there, and he was teaching his new converts the basics of the Christian faith. But before he could finish, he got persecuted and driven out of town. He got driven out of the city. And so he did not get to finish grounding these new converts, grounding his church plant in the basics of Christian doctrine. And so here, really, in these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, Paul is taking up this unfinished business, and he's covering topics they had questions about because their instruction had been incomplete. So because he got driven out of town, he didn't get to finish giving, uh, teaching on these kind of things, so they've got some questions, and Paul's going to answer those questions here. So the Thessalonians, what, what, what was their concern? Their concern was about Christian friends and relatives who had already died. Maybe they had died in persecution. Maybe they had died some other way. But uh, they had fallen asleep, to use Paul's metaphor. They had fallen asleep before Jesus returns, obviously. And so the question is, what happens to them? If they die before Jesus comes back, will they miss out? And Paul's answer is no, not at all. In fact... Paul says here that their grief for those departed, now sleeping saints 
while yes, it's fine to grieve, there's a place for grief, their grief should be limited. And it should be limited by the good news, by the hope that we have. See, the Thessalonians were grieving their lost loved ones. But Paul wants them to know there is hope. There is a hope greater than grief, a hope that overcomes grief. So here's his principle. This is how he puts it. When a Christian loved one dies, we don't grieve like the pagans do. That's what Paul says here. We don't grieve like the pagans. Christian grief over death is different from pagan grief over death because Christian grief is bounded by and limited by hope. And we have a hope that overcomes death. We know death isn't the end. We know that death is a defeated foe. We know that resurrection life is promised. We know a glorious new creation is promised. All who die before the Lord returns, they won't miss out on any of that, Paul says here. They will miss nothing at all. So yes, there is a place for Christian grief. Even Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. But there's no place for hopeless grief. That would be a pagan kind of grief, not Christian grief. We don't mourn the way the pagans mourn. Uh, the great 4th uh, century Christian preacher John Chrysostom dealt with this in his day. Chrysostom noticed that pagan funerals were very full of this very public and very ostentatious lamenting, this weeping and wailing in the streets that would go on for days and days. He described the pagan wailings in public places and their groanings over those who had departed this life. But then Chrysostom noticed something else. He noticed that Christian funerals were starting to look all too much like those pagan funerals. And in fact, Christian funerals have become indistinguishable from pagan funerals. And he said, this should not be. And so he told his congregation, he complained that this kind of conduct essentially nullified uh, their belief in the resurrection to, to mourn like the pagans mourn. What can be more unseemly, he asked, than for a person who professes to be crucified to the world to shriek hysterically in the presence of death? He says those who are really worthy of being lamented are those ones who are still in fear and trembling at the prospect of death and have no faith at all in the resurrection because of this future hope that we have. We should not mourn like the pagans do. The pagans are hopeless. We have a hope that limits our grief. And then he says at the end of his sermon to his congregation, he says, may God grant you all to depart this life unwailed. That is, when you depart this life, may there be no wailing. May God grant that you all depart this life unwailed. Now as a preacher, like all preachers, he's prone to overstatement. In order to make his point, yes, we preachers sometimes overstate things. Not all wailing is wrong. There is a place for wailing and weeping, uh, certainly a place for grief. But otherwise, I think he is exactly right. We don't grieve like the pagans. Christian grief is hemmed in by this hope that we have. It's interesting. The book of Lamentations is a book of grief. It's a book of lament. And every section in uh, in the book of Lamentations starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It is an acrostic, kind of an A to Z. If we want to use our English alphabet. It's kind of an A to Z of Jeremiah's grief, Jeremiah's lamenting over the city of Jerusalem when it gets destroyed. But it's an acrostic. He uses letters, not numbers. Christian grief is alphabetic. It's not numerical. If it was numerical, it's just gone forever because there's no limit to the, you know, numbers go on forever. It's infinite. 
No, Christian grief is acrostic. There's an A and there's a Z, but it ends and it gives way to something else. It's always hemmed in and bounded by joy and by hope. Well, why is that? Well, Paul goes on here, verse 14, he really answers that question. Why is Christian grief limited and bound? He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. The past guarantees the, the, the future. That's what he's saying here. What has happened in the past guarantees our future. Our hope is in Christ's final coming. And when he comes again, he's bringing heaven with him. The departed saints who are in heavenly glory right now will come with him at the last day. This is the hope of the gospel. Verse 14 really sums it up. Christ died, Christ rose, Christ will come again. That's the Christian message. That's the gospel. That's the Christian hope. And so for the Christian, death is only temporary. It is a sleep, as Paul says, followed by an awakening when Christ returns. When Christ returns, he will awaken the dead. He will raise the dead. When he returns at the last day, he's bringing with him those believers who have preceded us in death, those believers who have already died. They will come with him from heaven to earth. The Thessalonian Christians... We're concerned about those who had already died. Would those who died before Jesus' final coming miss out? No, not at all, Paul says. The dead in Christ, in fact, will be raised first. They will return with the Lord at his coming. Now, that raises another set of questions. What's going to happen to those who are alive at that last day? What about those who are still alive on that day when Jesus returns? Well, Paul goes on to answer that in verses 15, 16, and 17, those who are alive on earth on that day will be caught up together with them in the clouds. They will meet the Lord in the air. And so all of God's people, those who have died before that day and those who are still alive on earth on that day, all of God's people will be with the Lord and make this descent with Jesus from heaven to earth. Now this being caught up in the air, this passage gets a lot of attention. This is what is known as the rapture from the Latin word for being caught up into the air. But there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. And I want to just take a minute here to address that very briefly. We want to talk about this more. We can do that after the sermon, after the service today. Understand the rapture as it's described here is not a standalone event. And it is not a private event. After all, it's accompanied by a shout, by the voice of an archangel, uh, by the sound of a trumpet. More on that in just a minute. Note that the rapture happens at the same time as Jesus' return, the final coming of Jesus, and it happens at the same time as the resurrection of the dead. So rapture, resurrection, and return all go together. They're really all part of one big Event. First Thessalonians 4 says those who are alive on that day will be raptured at Jesus' return. Philippians chapter 3 says our bodies, our lowly bodies, will be transformed into glorious bodies at the time of his return. Those who meet Jesus in the air do not then go up to heaven with him. Rather, they continue with Jesus on his way to earth in his descent. Here's an analogy. Think of a great king coming to visit a city. This is actually what the word to meet uh, there means. This is how it would have been used. It was really a political term to describe a group of people who would come out from a city to meet the king who was coming to pay their city a visit. The people of that city would come out to meet the king and they would escort him into the city. 
They wouldn't go back with the king to some other place. They would come outside the city, meet the king, and then escort him into the city. That's what's being described here. In fact, the word is used in Acts 28 in just this way to describe a delegation that came outside the city of Rome to meet with Paul and then journey with him into the city. They came out to meet Paul as a sort of honored guest, even though he's a prisoner, and then to come back into the city with him to continue with Paul on his journey into the city. This event, when Jesus returns, will ultimately bring heaven and earth together. The whole creation will be renewed and glorified and in our resurrection bodies, we will live in the presence of the Lord forever. Jesus' final coming completes the Christian hope. Now, take what I've just said about all of this. And again, let's talk about this rapture for just a minute. Because this is where there's really confusion. Some American preachers over, let's say, the last 150 years or so have taught an event called the rapture as separate from the final coming of Jesus, as if the rapture was its own event. And that's really where you kind of get this idea that believers on earth are caught up to, 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 to meet Jesus in the air and then go back to heaven with him. That's not what this passage teaches. And I'll tell you this too. Before 1830, okay, before 1830, Nobody in the history of the church had ever taught that. Nobody in the history of the church before 1830 had ever taught a secret rapture of the church as its own event. But of course now, you know, over the last few generations, we've had book series about this and become bestsellers. We've had lots of movies made about this kind of thing. It's really taken on a life of its own and it's become an event that is the subject of all kinds of speculation, all kinds of talk about the rapture. In fact, a lot of times people will talk more about the rapture than they do the final coming of Jesus. And that's not how it should be. Paul doesn't present it that way here in this passage. The rapture has become its own event in the minds of many. And the whole idea is that believers will be raptured out of this earth and unbelievers will then be left behind and then life will go on for them, and because there are no Christians here, the world will slide into a great tribulation that lasts seven years, and then Jesus will come back at the end of that seven-year period. Okay, this passage simply will not allow that view. It's simply, there's simply no place for it here. Those who talk about a secret rapture need to see in this text there's nothing secret about this Event. Maybe when Jesus was born into the world, it was a silent night. Not really, because the angels were singing. But it certainly won't be a silent night when he returns. There's going to be a loud shout. There's going to be a trumpet blast. There's going to be the voice of an archangel. Just as the angels sang when he was born into this world, there'll be the voice of an archangel crying out when he returns to this world. This is a public event, a cosmic event, a final event. The shout that it describes here, it's probably the voice of Jesus. The shout of Jesus' own voice that raises the dead. The same way he raised Lazarus from the grave with a shout. He said, come forth, Lazarus. So at the last day, his voice will raise the dead. Or perhaps that shout could also be understood as a battle cry or a victory cry. Because when he returns, every knee will bow before Jesus. And it will be manifest publicly that he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Emperor of Emperors. That will be made plain. Every knee will bow before him. No one will be able to resist his rule on that day. It will be a victory shout. The trumpet recalls the year of Jubilee, when a trumpet would be blasted throughout Israel 
to inaugurate the year of Jubilee, announcing that debts had been canceled and slaves freed. The eternal Jubilee will begin when Jesus returns, an eternal festival, an eternal Jubilee full of joy and gladness. So really, when you look at this, this passage, this is the picture you have. Jesus is going to return with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and the blast of a trumpet. The dead will rise. The saints will be caught up into the air to meet him and return with him to earth. All of these events are inseparable. It's really one complex of events. All these things happen at the same time. Now, a couple other notes here. A couple other things you need to be aware of. There are other comings of Jesus referred to in the New Testament. See, from the perspective of New Testament writers, all of whom wrote before 70 AD, the next big event on God's timetable, the next big event on God's calendar, so to speak, is Jesus coming in judgment to destroy the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And that event is described in places like Matthew 24. I actually think that's being described in the next chapter over in 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I think that's actually pointing to a 70 AD event, a judgment that's going to come on Jerusalem. That's not a bodily coming of Jesus, but it's a coming of Jesus in judgment to vindicate his people, to punish those who have been persecuting his people, and to end the old covenant order so the new covenant can be inaugurated in its fullness. Okay, that's an event that's prophesied in the Olivet Discourse, the book of Hebrews is largely about this, 70 AD. The book of Revelation has a lot to do with this transition that takes place in 70 AD, the coming of Jesus to end the old covenant and to fully inaugurate the new. That's the next coming on the timetable for those living in New Testament times in this apostolic era. But the Apostles, the rest of the New Testament also gives us this sense of a much more distant event, the final coming of Jesus at the end of history, clearly distinguished from that 70 AD coming, an event that takes place in a more distant future that is final, that is climactic. It is the end. For Paul, it's the way the story of human history comes to a conclusion. And so we can say the story of the world ends in this way with the final coming of Jesus. The world ends not with a whimper, but with the sound of a trumpet and with the voice of Jesus. That's how the world ends. And this, this final coming of Jesus, while we have an historical hope for the growth of the kingdom between today and that final day, God's made all kinds of promises about this intervening period of history that we live in right now. Our blessed hope, our eternal hope, our ultimate hope is pinned totally to this event, the final coming of Jesus at the end of history. And again, you can really see that here in verses 17 and 18. Paul says in verse 17, thus we shall always be with the Lord. What happens after Jesus' return? We will always be in the presence of the Lord. And so he says in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. That is, give one another strength and encouragement with these truths, with this promise. Here is a promise Paul is giving to them that will give hope and comfort for all believers. Now, let's see if we can tie all this together. Let's see if we can put all these things together. Paul wants the Thessalonians to live their daily lives with this final hope in mind. All those mundane things he's called them to, loving the brethren, minding their own business, working with their hands. Paul's saying, do all your mundane work with this glorious final event in mind. Be future-minded so you can be of good use in the present. That, that, that's really what he's 
telling them here. You know, there used to be a bumper sticker. I don't know if this is still around. I haven't seen this kind of thing in a long time. But a bumper sticker, you know, you'd see it every now and then. It used to say, uh, Jesus is coming, look busy. Okay? You know, those bumper stickers were around. And that's not, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say just look busy. You know, they're not faking it. Uh, but Paul does say something like that here. But I think it would be more accurate to say, Jesus is coming, stay faithful. Jesus is coming, so live your life today in light of that ending, in light of his coming. And so be faithful. You need to look at your Monday morning in light of the end of the world. See, again, I don't think Paul's really changing the subject in this passage, or to the extent that he is. It's still all integrated. It's all interrelated. All of these subjects are interlocking. How we live in the present and the hope we have for the future fit together and reinforce one another. For Paul, focusing on the last day was not about satisfying curiosity about what's to take place. Rather, it was to encourage faithfulness and godliness in the here and now. You know, it's been said the best way to write a story is to get a good, strong ending and then work backwards. You know, to, to tell a good story, you've got to know where you're going. And I think that's right. The point is that without a destination in view, it doesn't matter what turns you make along the way. If you don't know where you're going, who cares whether you make a right or left turn? It just doesn't matter because you don't have a destination in view. If there's no end goal, it doesn't matter what you do in the meantime. Without a fixed ending, nothing has meaning. But with the end in view, when you know what the final destination is, everything that leads up to it is loaded with meaning. In other words, again, this is what Paul is showing us. We have to know how the story ends in order to live with purpose in the present. And that's what Paul is doing for us here. He's showing us how these things link together. Knowing what will happen at the last day gives every day between now and then meaning and significance. It fills our lives with hope and with comfort. Again, Paul doesn't write these things to the Thessalonians to satisfy their curiosity so they can create timetables and charts and what have you. No, he wants to ensure their comfort and sustain their hope. That's really what it's all about. In Hebrews chapter 9, we read that Christ came once to bear the sins of many and will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly wait for him. We can know Jesus will come again because he has already come once. He's coming back to finish what he started, to complete his work. And this is really what Christ the King Sunday in the church calendar is all about. Really, you could say Easter and Ascension Day celebrate the inauguration of Christ's kingdom. Christ the King Sunday celebrates the completion of his kingdom. No, it hasn't happened yet. But we celebrate it in an anticipatory way. It anticipates that final celebration, what is to come. It's the last Sunday of the church year. And it points ahead to the last day of history when Christ returns to consummate his kingdom. This day in the church calendar celebrates in advance what we know is coming. What we know to be true. And in this way, it's designed to strengthen our hope and to keep our eyes fixed on that future goal. See, Christ himself is the goal of human history. His coming is the conclusion of human history. And just as he is God and man in one person, so he, in his coming, will join heaven and earth together as one. And he will join us together with God 
for all eternity. And we will live together as God's people, in God's presence, in his glorious new creation for all eternity. See, Paul here single-handedly deals with multiple concerns as he teaches on Christ's final coming in the end of history. He is showing us here a comfort that overwhelms our grief, that hems in our grief for loved ones who have died in Christ. He shows us what to look forward to. Again, that end in verse 17 is promised to us. We shall be with the Lord forever. There are no better words than that. No better promise can be made. We will be with the Lord forever. See, Christ and his people can never be separated, not in this life and not in death. And at the resurrection, we will enter into perfect fellowship with him that will never end. And of course, we'll have perfect fellowship with one another after Christ's return for all eternity. We'll be reunited with our loved ones in the Lord. And so we can say return, rapture, resurrection, and reunion all happen together. All believers will be reunited with one another even as we are joined to be with the Lord forever and ever. See, Paul's future orientation is loaded with practical significance for the present. His teaching about the future is not speculative. His teaching about the future is intended to help us right here, right now. You know, one of the biggest problems I think that comes from this modern view of making the rapture its own event, where the rapture really takes on a life of its own, as has happened in so much of the evangelical church, I think one of the biggest problems with that is it gives the impression that the Christian message is one of escape. That Christians are escapists, that we're looking to get out of this world, not to rule this world or transform this world or change this world. It gives the impression that the Christian hope is about escaping the world. No! That's Plato, not Paul. It just is in this passage. Paul has attacked Aristotle's view of manual labor, so he attacks Plato's view of the future. For Paul, it's not about escaping the world. It's about the world being renewed and transformed. God's not going to take his soldiers off of the battlefield when the battle's raging still. God's not going to airlift his people out of the battle zone. No, that's right where he wants us. He calls us to charge, not retreat, to win, not escape. We don't leave this world behind. We don't get raptured out of it so it can fall into tribulation without us. We don't leave this world behind so the world can go to hell in a handbasket. No. The church is going to be here till the very end. And our calling is to live faithfully and to faithfully carry out the mission and to do our duty until that last day. When Christ returns, this world will not be scrapped. This world will be renewed. It will be transformed, even as we will be resurrected and transformed. And for that reason, because there is continuity between this world and the world to come, what we do in this world, what we do in this life matters, and it matters for all eternity. So what would Paul say to us in light of Christ's final coming? He would say, do your duty in the present. Love the brethren. Live a quiet life. Work diligently, even with your own hands. Mind your own business. That's the Christian life. That's how you live today in light of the last day. And Martin Luther got a number of things wrong about eschatology, but I think he was on to something uh, with this. 
Uh, Luther was once asked, if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do today? And Luther said, I'd plant a tree. In other words, I would do my work. I'd live a quiet, productive life. That's what I would do if I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow. I'd live a hopeful, fruitful, future-oriented life. I'd plant kingdom seeds that can grow to fruition. That's what Luther's saying. Or in the words of Jeremiah 29, as Jeremiah's writing to the people of God who have undergone great upheaval, uh, great chaos with the exile, what does Jeremiah write and tell the people to do? He says, plant gardens, build houses, get married and have babies. In other words, keep building civilization. Build a civilization that honors God. Build a culture. Sing psalms, catechize your kids, help the needy. Do your job. Do your duty. Take care of your responsibilities. When you do those things, you are planting seeds of the kingdom that, Lord willing, will bear some fruit in this life, but will come to full fruition at the last day. We're to live our lives in such a way that we're constantly planting kingdom seeds that will grow and bear fruit. Don't get all wrapped up in speculations and timetables and guesses about the future. Whether Jesus is coming back tomorrow, or as I think is much more likely, he's coming back tens of thousands of years from now. And if you want to talk about why I think that's more likely, grab me after the service. I'll be happy to tell you. Okay. But whether you think he's coming back tomorrow or tens of thousands of years from now, your duty is the same. Get to work. Fulfill your responsibilities. Walk in faith, hope, and love every day. During the Great Awakening in the 18th century, uh, a number of uh, pastors who were leaders in the Great Awakening had, had gotten together for a meeting and they were talking. So this included men like George Whitfield, who was kind of the celebrity pastor of the day, and Gilbert Tennant, who was another famous preacher of the day. Tennant was considerably older than the others who had gathered. Uh, but Whitfield and some of the younger preachers were talking about the trials and the burdens they were enduring in their ministries and how much they longed to depart this life and go to be with the Lord. And Gilbert Tennant, who again was the oldest man sitting at the table, uh, remained silent. And he was obviously not enjoying the conversation. And so George Whitfield turned to him, tapped him on the knee and said, Well, Brother Tennant, you're the oldest man among us. Do you not rejoice to think that your time is so near at hand when you will be called home and free from all the difficulties attending this checkered scene? In other words, life and ministry is so hard. Don't you, aren't you just ready to, to go and be with the Lord? And Mr. Tennant bluntly answered, I have no wish about it. And so Mr. Whitfield pressed him again, and Mr. Tennant answered again, No, sir, it is no pleasure to me at all, and if you knew your duty, it would be none to you. I have nothing to do with death. My business is to live as long as I can and to serve my Lord and Master as faithfully as I can until he shall think it proper to call me home. That should be our view of life and work. We're not seeking for an escape. We're not looking for a, 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 a rapture escape hatch. We're not looking to be airlifted out of here. No, we are to work. We are to work for God's kingdom as long as we can, as diligently as we can, as faithfully as we can. We're to live today in light of that day. We're to live each day in light of the last day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let's continue our worship by giving of our tithes and offerings.